Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. Good morning, church family. Our uh, scripture reading today is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise and in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed them, that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Thank you so much. Happy Sabbath all and welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's something that I heard from Tony as he welcomed myself and my wonderful wife, Lusani. That's something that I heard from the, the man who was very close to God. Yes, um, don't tell me. I want to say Edward. Get, David, close enough. <laughs> Thank you all for helping me and my wife feel very welcome here. I am glad to worship with you all today. And to begin, I, I'd like for us to consider that we are entering into the holiday season. This, uh, this week, these coming days, for us, a lot of us will be celebrating the attitude of gratitude and the action of giving thanks. And this is very important. It's important that we as selfish and sinful human beings cultivate gratitude. It's important that this is a holiday, not like Christmas and Easter, such that it has heavy religious tones. It's important that this is a holiday that is not saturated in religion because it's welcoming believers, non-believers alike, can come together and harvest what is good for the soul, gratitude. Here, I'm going to be sharing with you all something very special to me about the details surrounding the first Thanksgiving in this country. And that is 
the experience of the pilgrims that, that led to the first Thanksgiving in 1621. These pilgrims had to establish a new colony on this continent 400 years ago, the New World. And today we will be seeing that in every pilgrimage, there is cause for thankfulness. I invite you all to pray with me. Our loving Lord, our bountiful Father, abundant in love and steadfast mercy, slow to anger, Lord, you are worthy. You are good. Thank you, Lord, for this day and this time. Thank you for your wonderful words of love. We ask for your presence right now. Bless us with the Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts, fill our lungs, fill our minds with your light. We thank you and we love you and dedicate this before you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we're going to be having a little bit of a history lesson here for the next few minutes. And this is perhaps a story that many of us have heard about a million times before. Probably in kindergarten school plays, or maybe you've seen the Care Bears version of it. But there's a lot more to this um, story of the pilgrims than we're used to. There's a lot more to it than we learned when we took that field trip for history class in middle school to Plymouth Rock at Plymouth Harbor in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Maybe those of us who went to this field trip at Plymouth Rock found that this monument, this site, is boring. It's a rock that's two and a half feet long. I can throw it and I can chuck it into the harbor which is a lot more interesting than this rock. Nobody wants to go there, to Plymouth Rock. But today we'll be understanding a little better the world surrounding the first Thanksgiving and recognize why the pilgrims were not just travelers on a trip. They were on a deeply spiritual pilgrimage. So um, before we unpack what happened in 1620 and 1621, I feel the need to clarify something. Uh, I want to be clear that I'm not defending any violence that took place after the first Thanksgiving uh, or excusing any of the violence of the early settlers or colonies. It's, um, it's a sin-filled world that we live in, the fallen reality. For example, um, Jesus summed it up very well in Mark 7, 21 and 23. This is in Mark 7, 21 and 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Let's remember that there's no country in the history of this world that has come into existence without any bloodshed and that's just the sinful world, the reality of the sinful world in which we live. So today we're going to be talking about the pilgrims, but I am not portraying them as perfect, innocent, sinless saints. At the same time, I will also not try to pretend that the natives 
who were in the Americas, in the New World at that time, they're not entirely innocent either. We need to understand history against the backdrop of the fallen world, and that is the reality of living in a fallen world. Um, every major world event comes with violence and bloodshed. But now, what's startling is that even against this dark background of a fallen world, we can find fascinating moments of light. And that's one such example that we'll be looking at with the pilgrims. They were actually Puritans in England. These were people who were very strongly and deeply devout Christians. They were actually radical conservatives. They were Protestant when the world around them, the Christianity around them, was Catholic. It was, if the churches were not Catholic in England in the 1600s, then they were Catholic light, in that they had the same rituals, the same liturgy, the same extra-biblical and post-biblical roots. It was the tradition of man that was surrounding the culture of the church in their time, and they knew that this is not what God wanted. This is not what the church is supposed to do. And under King James I, he saw separatism as insurrectionism. If you say anything against the institute of the church, if you want your name stricken from the record, if you want to form your own group of worship and not conform to the, to the laws that we are making in the institute, institute of the church, you are doing an insurrection and you need to be taken care of. So people, um, these Puritans, they found that their houses were being watched. They found themselves imprisoned and even executed. They knew that they had no place in King James's England. Something had to be done, so they fled to Holland. Not to Michigan, but to Holland with the Dutch. And over there they found a, a cosmopolitan society. In other words, that's a society in which they believe that every individual matters. It's very inclusive, and these Dutchmen were very business-oriented. And the pilgrims thought, we have gone away from our natural home in England because we want to worship our God in our way as we see in the Bible. We've escaped the treacherous King James I. But you know what? Holland wasn't that good either. At Holland, even though they had all this promise of inclusivity and religious tolerance, they found that two things. Number one, the merchants at Holland, the different businessmen, would take advantage of them. They will start out by saying, sure, uh, you only need to work four days and you keep uh, half of the profits that you make. After a few months, you're going to work six days now and we keep the majority of the profits. After another few months, you're working all the time and we keep all the profits. They found themselves being swindled by harsh, cruel, yet suave and smooth-speaking businessmen. And not only that, but also their children started to conform to this Dutch world. They started to speak Dutch. 
they started to become more materialist and they were starting to move away from the precepts of Christianity, which these Puritans had gone to Holland in the first place to preserve. They knew that they have no more place here. We cannot stay here long term. We need to get out. But as a result of more and more uh, manipulation by these businessmen getting worse and worse deals, finally they were able to get a ship to sail to the new world. The only place where they can have true religious freedom is to create their own place, their own society. And it's because of these harsh business dealings that the only time they could leave was winter. The worst time to travel into a completely new land. So, these people, they were an eschatological people. They really, truly believed that they would be the ones who would bring in this um, purification of the world. They would be the ones whom others would see and say there is something to their purity. They can... Um, they are making something in God that will cause them to prosper and bless their land. They really thought that they would be the first domino in a series that would lead to a reformation of the corruption of the church and the sinfulness of society. And it's because of this, this huge, this very heavy sense of duty that they felt we're moving forward. We know that we're going to be sailing in the winter, but we have a God-given mission to find a place for our biblical values, for our families to thrive, and to be an example for everyone else in the established world. They saw a blank slate opportunity so they boarded the Mayflower, which was a, um, a ship with a cave-like structure on the inside that was only about 75 feet long. That's about, if I were to take my minivan and borrow four of you guys' minivans, we'd have five minivans in front of each other. That's about how long they had for 102 people for 65 days. Or you can think of it like a general aisle in a supermarket, that's how big of a size they had for 102 people for 65 days, during which time two women gave birth. So you can imagine the harsh conditions that they were in with these tight quarters in, at sea with the boat moving, also in the cold of winter. There was even a big wave that came onto the boat and it shattered uh, the, it cracked rather, it cracked the structural timber of the boat. These people were so um, devoted, so engaged to their mission that they brought out what's known as a screw jack. It was a tool they, that they had at that time to lift heavy objects. They used that to put the mast back together and essentially, when they arrived in the Americas, it was held together practically by staples and scotch tape. It was rough conditions. And they had already run out of supplies. 
So these people, when they established, when they arrived at the New World, they made what's known as a Mayflower Compact. Here they said, we are still under the rulership of King James. We are still remaining loyal. This is not an act of rebellion against the established order because, um, well, this is different than what happened in 1776. That's later. These people did not see themselves as wanting to cause a revolt. They just wanted reformation. And they said, we will keep our allegiance to the king, but we are going to be making our own laws. And during that first winter, half of them died. Can you imagine living in a society where you go through so much hardships for over two months in tight quarters, only for half of you to die? In our world in the last few years, we saw um, what could crudely be described as a fraction of a percentage of the world pass away due to COVID. There are a lot of other nuances to this, but raw numbers, it's a smaller number than what we have here for half of them dying. And the world stopped. Everything came to a halt just a couple of years ago. But here, what did they do? They said, we press forward. We continue with our mission to hold our religious liberty, our ways of worship. We need to hold them. We need to um, conserve this culture for our children, for posterity, and for the world to see a brilliant, shining example. Now, what's fascinating is that while they are really struggling with food and heat during the winter, there comes a man, there comes a native, he practically comes out of the woods, and he speaks English. Of course, this is a broken English. It's not that good, but it's not that bad either. This man, Squanto, he is a native who just starts speaking to them in English. Wouldn't you know it? In this area that had, in the last decade, been annihilated due to various sicknesses that other settlers and colonialists brought from the old world, all the natives died because of the uh, plague or due to the uh, smallpox. Here we have the only native in all the continent who spoke English and he was Christian. This is because in the decade prior, he had been picked up by these slave ships due to other, um, other Westerners, and they brought him to Spain, to France, to England as a slave, but he was liberated by Christians who taught him about God, and thus he became a uh, reborn. So as he makes his way back home, within two years, he meets the settlers of people who are looking for uh, help and also establishing a society with religious liberty. It's a miracle that the one man in this whole half of the world who could sympathize with them, who could speak English and also teach them the ways of the land, he was there to help them. That to me is amazing. And so it's in the midst, that's, that's one of the brilliant shining miracles that I see here, in the midst of 
everyday, old-world violence, squalor, squabbling, plague, and disaster. Against all of that comes Plymouth. This self-governance, this religious commitment, this civilization, they have the, they, the ability to recognize the universal equality of human beings, this readiness to sacrifice everything for the chance to serve God. This astonishing, remarkable thing is the exceptional origin of the new world of our country, of this holiday known as Thanksgiving. With this in mind, I invite us all to turn in our Bibles. We're going to be looking at Genesis 11. We're going to be looking at Genesis 11, starting at verse 27. Genesis 11, 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Haran is about two-fifths of the way from Ur to Canaan. So when they're only about 40% done with a the trip, they, the original one who was called Terah, the patriarch of the family, passes away. So now the rest of the family, Abram here, they have to decide, do we stay or do we keep going? Verse 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Before we continue to verse 4, let's ponder, why was Abraham chosen? Or in this case, Abram. Why was Abram chosen? I'd like to read from the book of Education, page 187. Sister White says, God called Abraham to be a teacher of his word. He chose him to be the father of a great nation because he saw that Abraham would instruct his children and his household in the principles of God's law. And that which gave power to Abraham's teaching was the influence of his own life. His great household consisted of more than a thousand souls, many of them heads of families, and not a few but newly converted from heathenism. Such a household required a firm hand at the helm. No weak, 
vacillating methods would suffice. We see God talking about this in Genesis 18, 19. Now, this is Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Sister White continues in Education, page 187, Yet his authority was exercised with such wisdom and tenderness that hearts were one. The testimony of the divine watcher is, They shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment in, Exodus, in Genesis 18:19, And Abraham's influence extended beyond his own household wherever he pitched his tent. He set up beside it the altar for sacrifice and worship. When the tent was removed, the altar remained, and many a roving Canaanite, whose knowledge of God had been gained from the life of Abraham his servant, tarried at that altar to offer sacrifice to Jehovah. What commitment from Abraham here! What leadership! This is, this is moving. People who didn't even know him were still affected by what he did. He really left an impression here. We continue with Genesis 12. We're on verse 4 now. Genesis 12 and verse 4. So when Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Verse 5 now, And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Now, here in Canaan, this land was very heavily wooded at that time, and its roads are described in a number of ancient Egyptian texts as being a nightmare to travelers. Abram never goes into the cities that he passes by. He always prefers to stay outside. So it is interesting that whenever Abram's setting is recorded, it's always in a religious context. So Abram must have pitched his tent many times as he was traveling from Haran. But those pauses were never mentioned. The only time in the Bible, the, the only time in the Bible that we see his stops is when it mentions the altars. The reason for this exception is that stops, like the one mentioned in verse 6, are significant as they are associated with the building of an altar. We now go to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Lord appeared to Abram. This is a third divine revelation to Abram now. If we start counting at 1127 all the way here, the third divine revelation to Abram, according to what's written here, its purpose was to comfort him. 
and to inspire him anew with confidence and courage. This is the assurance that possession of the land would come in God's own time and in God's own way. When God appears to you, it may not always be a new instruction that you haven't heard before or a renewal of something. Oftentimes, God appears to you for the sake of your comfort because your anxiety, your worry, your state of emotional being matters to God. At the same time, the appearance of the Lord is identified with the point of destination. So the promised land is associated with the Lord himself. And we go to verse 8 now. From there, Abram moved down, um, he moved on the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name means um, to turn to the one named as the single referent of life. That means to give supremacy to or to um, devote value. This reflects the life-altering decision made in verse 4 to go out as the Lord had told him. And this encompasses the whole of Abram's life. This kind of devotion is a heavy devotion. When I call upon the name of God, I am flushing everything out of me to give to him. We see a semblance of this in Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2. This is Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known the deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. And we see this kind of petition in Psalm 116, verses 3 and 4. This is Psalm 16, verses 3 and 4. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Calling on God means experiencing this relief as you relieve yourself of everything that's pent up in you, giving the real heaviness to the Lord. So now we examine Abram building an altar where even among the Canaanites, the building of an altar is an assertion to the promise maker, the promise maker, my promise maker, your promise maker, our promise maker. Here he is being honored. He is being trusted. He is being upheld. And my house is not giving in to the influences of the world, the influences of the enemy, the influences of the depravity of man. My house stands firm in my promise maker. It's a polemic against every other God and every other loyalty. And even when Abram erected an altar, um, he would um, pitch his tent. Also in Genesis 13 verse 18, 
We're going to read Genesis 13, verse 18 now. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. He is conducting public worship for the members of his household and for the pagans living nearby. Wherever he went, he confessed the one whom he trusted and obeyed. And finally, our reading of Genesis 12 finishes with verse 9. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, the southern region. The metaphor for sojourning, or being a sojourner, or a pilgrim, or being on a pilgrimage, or journeying onward, the metaphor is a radical one. It's a challenge to the dominant ideologies of our time, which yearn for settlement, security, placement. If we were to take a look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the baseline for everyone is security, an established place where you can call home. Discipleship, however, comes along this at a different angle. In the ancient world, when Jesus was just um, doing his ministry, and in the years following his death, we have a movement that he's doing within the world of Judaism, a radical movement which is known as the Way. For example, in Matthew 8 and 9 and 10, Jesus tells people, follow me. And we see the way in Acts 9, 1 and 2. This is Acts 9, 1 and 2. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Early Christianity in the very earliest days was the way. This term, the way, marks Christians as those who live in a way that is contrasted to every fixed and settled form of life. They pursue a God who finally will be at peace with no human arrangement that falls short of the kingdom in its practice of justice and freedom. The way clearly brought the early church into conflict with all the false ways of self-securing. My security my peacefulness rests not on myself, rests not on what I have established. It rests on my Lord, who always has something new planned for me. I can get picked up tomorrow and go to another place and perform other tasks with another way of life. And I will be secure because I know the one who is asking me to do that. I know the one who is speaking to me, telling me the way that I go. We go back to Abraham now in the scripture reading for today, which is Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. We will read that one more time here. That's Hebrews 11, verses 
8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Not that he did receive, but he is to receive. When he went out, this is my favorite part, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That always gives me chills. Verse 9, by faith he went on to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And this city ultimately, for us, is the new Jerusalem. We see this in Hebrews 12.22 and Hebrews 13.14, which I'll read. Hebrews 12.22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city on the living, of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Hebrews 13.14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Cities, they all have foundations. They have plans that are laid out in the most boring of meetings, just ask my wife. She is a part of all these city planning, uh, traffic um, meetings that I, I know that I cannot endure. I'm glad I don't have her job. But all these engineers, they're, they're happy with it for some reason, somehow. Cities have foundations, very intricate infrastructure. But tents do not. Tents you put up, put down. Abraham would be traveling to and fro in tents with no foundation, no intricacy, no infrastructure. Grammatically speaking, in verse 10 here of Hebrews 11, the foundations are eternal because God is its builder and architect. We continue with Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We're in verse 14 now. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called your God because the people here, they reflect his character. If you reflect your God's character, he is not ashamed to be called your God. But there is an instance, Christ warned in the last day, that he will be ashamed of every man who has made an attempt to save his life by gaining what the world has to offer. This is in Mark 8. 34 to 38. Here we're going to see what God is ashamed of in Mark 8, 
verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38 now. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So here we see that the man who is willing to lose or to forfeit his life for Christ is actually saving it. If I rely on my securities, on my peaceful situation in which I find myself in, if I want to rely on my established, um, my established uh, securities, then I'm anchored in such a way that Christ cannot move me from that. But should I trust instead on the author of my salvation? Should I trust in God's leading, not in what I see, not in what I have, not in what my investment portfolio reflects? Should I trust in the Lord himself actively in real life, in everyday little tasks? That is the God who is not ashamed of me. That is the God who will lead me in the way to follow him. So we come now, October 1621. Did you all know the first Thanksgiving was October? That surprised me. But October 1621, the reality, the brutal reality of the world did not change. This Plymouth colony did not suddenly have abundant crops. It did not suddenly have infrastructure. It did not suddenly have the iPhone. They were still living in the reality of their time. They cannot escape a fallen world. The horrors of the world never ceased, but they still managed to stand and be grateful, feasting together with one another in peaceful abundance. They made the way forward in order to have this communion, celebrating the, this colony which is centered on religious liberty. We ourselves, you and I, were not moved out of the backdrop of this sinful fallen world in which they lived. We still live among the plague, death, danger, risk, corruption, cold-heartedness is still a part of life for us. On some days, we see it more than others, but it cannot be escaped. We need to take moment to celebrate over and against that, in spite of the reality of our world, we choose to harbor gratitude, thankfulness. Our minds become changed because of it. In this sinful world, we become beacons to those around us who see, does that person have something I don't? 
I need to talk to him, see what's going on. What does he know that I don't? Whom does he know that I don't? We need to establish community with those around us, celebrating our origins and pride, what we are, where we came from, giving thanks to God in all things, for richer or poorer. So Abraham lived always in a future tense. He did not live looking at the past. He did not live focusing on the present. He always lived with an eye toward the future, knowing that God always has something else for him. He is building toward that at all times. Abraham obeyed despite not knowing how God's will was going to be accomplished or when his promises are going to be fulfilled. It's not what we live in, but what we look for. And as Christians, we are pursuing a very risky promise. This is a pursuit of a promise that can never be one generational. This is something where each generation trusts that if the promise is not now fulfilled, then it will be given to a next generation. God remains faithful despite what is around us. We shouldn't demand everything now, but we should work for the enrichment of our future generations. So for those of us who have children, make sure that they understand what Thanksgiving is about. It's not about the tofurkey. It is about the gratitude. It is about the God who provides and it is about the God of surprises because we are pilgrims going forward, not knowing where we're going. And for those of you who don't have children, find a family, come gather. Let's have community together. That is where in the midst of people working together is where we have, uh, where we have true establishing progress. With that in mind, I'd like to invite you all to um, just pray with me as we close. Our Lord, our way, our guide, Father, you are abundant. We cherish you. We hold you in supreme value and we love you, Lord, with all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Thank you, Father. For blessing us with a spirit of gratitude and for never leaving us, never abandoning us, but surprising us with how well you provide in every step forward on the journey that you author. You are good. We love you. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast at midlandsda.org.